Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have the cultural psychologist Michelle Gelfand on the podcast. Dr. Gelfand is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Gelfand uses field, experimental, computational, and neuroscience methods to understand the evolution of culture, as well as its multi-level consequences for human groups. In addition to publishing numerous articles in many prestigious scientific outlets, she's the author of the really great book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire the World. Dr. Gelfand, what a pleasure it is to chat with you today. Oh, so happy to be here. Um, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Mm-hmm. Good, good. So I want to begin with this seemingly innocuous question, but, but which opens up many cans of worms, or maybe just one can of worm. What are social norms? So this is a great question. And you know, as a cross-cultural psychologist, I try to understand this really puzzling phenomena of culture. You know, culture is one of these puzzles because it's omnipresent. It's all around us, but it's invisible. Like we tend to ignore it all the time. And it's like the story of two fish where they're, they're swimming along and they pass another fish who says, how's the water, boys? And they swim on and one says to the other, what the hell is water? And for fish, this invisible thing is water. But for humans, it's culture. And a big part of culture is social norms or these unwritten standards for behavior that sometimes become more formalized in laws and rules. But n- nevertheless, we follow social norms all the time endlessly without even realizing it. And we have to uh, really understand their impact on social behavior. And that's why I wrote the book. That's so cool. Um, Well, thank you for writing it and for uh, shining this light on this. But certainly there's individual differences in that. You know, you find um, like dark triad people, you know, people who score high on the dark triad scales and Machiavelli's and narcissism psychopathy. They they don't like social norms. They are averse to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I write in the book about sort of individual differences in people who like or dislike social norms, rule makers, rule bakers. You could think about the analogy of the chaos versus order Muppets. Exactly. Like think about Sesame Street, like the chaos Muppets are like, you know, Cookie Monster and, you know, and and animal who love to like just create chaos and don't follow rules. And then you think about Bert, like er, Ernie and uh, or Bert actually and Kermit the Frog who love rules. And I actually have a tight loose mindset quiz on my website where you can find out where do you veer in terms of tight or loose mindsets. People who like tightness do really notice rules. They have a lot of impulse mm. control and they like structure. Ah. People who veer loose tend to ignore rules more often. They're more impulsive Uh, But they're more creative and they're more open minded. And in the book, I talk about 
the advantages and disadvantages of this construct across different levels, from nations to neurons, from states to organizations. So it's something that I think about as a fractal pattern, which is the repeated pattern of phenomenon across different levels. And so I try to illuminate why do tight and loose differences evolve in the first place at cross levels and what, what consequence? Yeah, I love that you linked that, that to creativity. Some people have, I wonder how that relates to uh, some people argue that Asian cultures are less creative, you know, then do, do you think that some of that can expo- be explained by sort of the lice or the looseness or tightness of the culture itself? Yeah. So, you know, in our first um, analysis of tight loose, it was across 30 something nations where we were able to classify nations as veering tight or loose, even knowing that all nations have tight and loose elements. And some countries like Japan and Singapore, China veer tighter than places like Brazil and New Zealand and the Netherlands. Oh, in Brazil, anything goes. (laughs) <laughs> I've been to right. Brazil. One of our indicators of tightness was the accuracy of clocks and how coordinated clocks are in city streets. I see. So in tight cultures, the clocks and city streets pretty much say the same thing. But in loose cultures like Brazil or Greece, you're not entirely sure what time it is because the clocks around you say a lot of different things. And that speaks to something that really is about the tight loose trade-off. Tight cultures have a lot of order and loose cultures have a lot of openness. And that means that, you know, both have strengths and liabilities depending on your vantage point. So with your question about creativity, we have found that across nations, across states, across organizations that are tight, they tend to have less novelty, less idea generation than loose cultures. But what's interesting, and we're finding this more recently, is that each has its own strengths in terms of innovation. So loose cultures can create a lot of ideas, but tight cultures can implement them much better. So in fact, both again have strengths that can be brought to bear on a common issue like innovation. Oh, great! Have you uh, read Richard Farda's work at all on uh, the creative class? Yeah, the creativity class, and yeah, and that's ci- the city level. Also, I think his work yeah. is really interesting. That's right. Because this also differs state by state within America, right? Um, do you think like is there a South difference versus? North, I don't know. I, I don't want to grossly stereotype things without you actually no, telling me what that, the data says. That's really says. important, right? So in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about how we can move beyond red versus blue right, right. to look at yeah. tight and loose. And in fact, we have uh, a paper in the PNAS Journal, Proceedings of the National Academy, that rank orders the 50 states in terms of tight and loose. And um, Who's the in tightest? Fact, like, you're saying that the South tends to actually veer tight. They have more strict rules. They have more order to some extent. They have less creativity. They're also more polite. So the the rudest states are the loosest states, which tend to be on the coasts. But those states tend to have more creativity, like you, like you surmised. And so what that means is that we can kind of look at different, um, different states now through a new lens. One of the more important things that I talk about in the book is why these differences evolve in the first place. And what oh, we find across nation states, et cetera, is that Groups that have a lot of threat, whether it's from Mother Nature, like chronic disasters or famine, or um, other human types of threats like pathogens or population density or invasions, tend to veer tighter. And the logic's pretty simple. When groups have a lot of threat, they need rules to coordinate to survive. And norms provide that. They help people to actually control themselves in difficult situations. And the tightest states in the U.S. tend to have more threat. They have more pathogens, they have more disasters, and so forth. And so you, there's some kind of logic to why groups evolve to be tighter loose. I mean, with that said, and we could talk about it later, threats now are, in, in, whether they're perceived or real, tend to produce the same tight psychology. And that's something nowadays that we're dealing with more and more in terms of how is tight loose manifesting itself in politics and in other contexts oh. where threat is less objective and more perceived. Oh, but should we jump into the politics one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what I could say is that, so for example, at the national level and the state level, like I mentioned, objective chronic threat produces a desire for tightness. Because again, norms, one of the biggest functions is that they help us to coordinate. And we need more of those when we're actually threatened. Sure. But we also see in my lab that we can prime people to feel threatened. And almost immediately, they desire stru- stricter rules and more autocratic types of leaders. And actually, that's a really important in a lot of ways, evolution a really adaptive principle. Like again, when we have collective threat, we can't solve this on our own. We need strong rules to coordinate and strong leaders to help us uh, survive. But some of the, the issue that we're facing is that people uh, more and more feeling threatened when some threats are not real or they're exaggerated. And of course, certain like immigrants people, and stuff. 
Sorry? Like the thought of immigrants coming in and stuff like that. Yeah, that's like right. That. I mean, we just published a, an op-ed in the LA Times where we showed that the misestimation of illegal immigration is really unbelievably Oh, can you send me alarmed. that? Uh, sure. I mean, it's, uh, and it's on my website. And also, like, that perception made people feel that the United States is too disorderly, too loose. And it was that perception, in turn, that drove their desire for people like Trump. And and in the elections, we found the same thing. In the U.S. and France, people who felt threatened by immigration, by ISIS, um, by many other threats, felt the U.S. was too disorganized and too loose. And that was in part related to their desire for someone like Trump. It happened in France also, the same exact data. We just published this data in, in PLOS One, a journal. And again, what's really fascinating about this is that we have to understand what's real in terms of threat and what's perceived because clearly there are some people that really feel threatened in rural areas and where yeah. where manufacturing is really um, having a lot of problems these ghost towns you see I drove through Michigan this past summer it was just amazing how much change there is people are feeling really threatened they really want tighter rules to help return to this order that they felt they had and that's in part explaining their desire for people like Trump and so I think when we think about the psychology of these elections and the deeper cultural codes that in part help us explain them. It's not a modern phenomenon. It happened in, you know, centuries ago. And I also have been writing about how, of course, leaders play into these threats. If we just created a new threat dictionary where we can analyze threatening speech and we could clearly see people like Trump use way more threatening language than Hillary or, and that people who are, um, they're trying to target groups that are actually threatened with these language and, and then use that to gain popularity. That's happening all around the world. And um, we'll be going uh, public with the tight loose, uh, the threat dictionary at wow. some point. Um, but it's it's important to understand that there's some threats that are really real driving some of these desire for autocratic leaders and some that are misperceived. And, and we need to really negotiate those realities as, as and we need our leaders to do that. Wait, so is it fair to say that um, in the past two years, America has become a tighter society uh, on average? You know, it's interesting. We produced um, uh, a paper last year that looked at how the U.S. has been loosening over the last 200 years oh. in general. But what you find, I think, in many countries is that we're becoming more divided in terms of tight and loose based oh. on rural versus urban in many different countries. So the kind of axis of tight, loose conflict is shifting. I see. Um, and again, I think in large part that's driven by perceptions of threat. When we have threat, um, we desire tightness. It's, it's really an adaptive principle in general. Um, and I think right now what we need to do is move beyond these kinds of stereotypes about people and understand why people are feeling threatened and how to cope with those threats. Like, for example, in the book, I talk about how Germany is an interesting context where they tend to really have standardized rules. They're tighter for helping the working class. Um, and we need to really um, try to help people to negotiate these new threatening realities. Um, and I think that's the key to trying to avoid um, the rise of populism. Oh, oh for sure. For sure. Populism. Uh, yeah. Authoritarianism as well. Yeah, yeah. because again, the, the, the fact is that people in countries that have chronic threat, there's more autocracy. There's more trade-off of security for freedom. You think about- yes. You know, loose cultures have had less threat. They can have more freedom because they need less security. They have less chronic threat. There are exceptions, of course, and there's lots of interesting d discussions in my book about, for example, why Israel, which tends to be pretty chronically threatened, veers loose in a lot of domains, mm. uh, also has its own uh, bifurcation uh, in terms of tight loose these days. But, you know, there's exceptions um, that where some groups can overcome the kind of tightness proclivity. Um, by having a lot of debate, by having a lot of dissent. Um, and um, I have a lot of examples of some tight cultures that have loose elements, some loose cultures that have tight elements, and just this kind of flashlight that can help us understand the world uh, in, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in an elucidating way. Yeah. Some people help you see in a different way, but it's useless. But I find you're <laughs> not, not everyone who, who shows me something in a new way. Am I like, oh, that's that's brilliant. But this is a good one. This is a good one. Good job, Michelle. Well, you know, it's not the only, yeah. you know, cultural construct. It's just that for many oh, years and I'm, I was trained by Harry Triandis. So I yeah. was working a lot on collectivism, individualism, a really important aspect of culture. Also, you know, how much we value groups this. versus yeah. individuality and privacy. But 
what happened was in the field of cross-cultural psychology is that we got so obsessed with this one dimension. It's kind of like in personality psychology, only focusing on like one dimension, like extroversion to the exclusion of other dimensions of culture. And many of us were guilty of that for a long time. And part of it's because cross-cultural psychology wasn't the, you know, really that uh, popular of a dis discipline because many of us were like kind of like tapping on people's shoulders saying, wait, is your stuff really universal? Does it really apply to beyond like a very small percentage of the world? Um, and so we, there was some safety in kind of focusing on collectivism. That's my sort of sociology of science explanation for why it's taken so long for us to kind of move beyond IC to look at other dimensions that are also useful for illuminating phenomenon. Uh, and so, you know, part of our quest in the science paper on tight loose was to show that surely these constructs are related, but they're distinct. So, for example, some East Asian cultures like Japan and Singapore veer collectivistic and tight. But there's also individualistic cultures that veer tight. Think about Germany, Austria, Switzerland. They tend to value privacy, but also rules. And then you could think about cultures that are um, individualistic and loose, like the U.S. and Australia. Mm. Uh, but there's also collectivistic cultures that, are, that veer loose. For, th for example, think about Brazil or Spain. Yeah. In our data, they so we're trying to, and they're correlated. They're actually, Harry Trandest had told me that he thought they were correlated 0.4. And I couldn't believe it when I analyzed the data at the national level. He was exactly right that that tight cultures tend to veer collectivistic, but there's also, like I mentioned, these off diagonals. And we found the same sort of distinction at the state level. You can have tight states that are collectivistic or or individualistic. Um, and it's the same thing we found now in traditional societies. So we have a new paper out that's analyzing pre-industrial societies where we coded all these ethnographies for tight loose. It was gave me a lot of gray hair that I now die. You know, this is a this is like a really very in, immersive, um, you know, methodology. We really wanted to see, like, can we see the same signature of this construct in pre-industrial societies? And we do find the same kind of signature that tight groups in the pre-industrial era tended to have more threat. And they also produce the same trade-off of order versus openness. And also, like I mentioned, the, the connection between individualism and collectivism and tight loose is also distinct in this kind of data. So the broader principle is that um, cross-cultural psychology is really expanding to like in, in great leaps and bounds these days, methodologically, theoretically. It's really a great time to be um, in the field. And, and, and even with social norms, we're trying to really create interdisciplinary spaces involving biologists and computer scientists and all sorts of people, economists doing work on social norms. Uh, uh, we just formed a new society just as a plug that's called the study, the Society for the Study of Cultural Evolution. And it's phenomenally interesting place. It's like being in Disneyland at, the, at this conference because there's just so many disciplines that are studying culture uh, and, uh, and understanding this complex phenomenon from different perspectives. So I'm really excited you know, for that interdisciplinarity uh, and bringing that into the field. I love that, Michelle. Hey, everyone. If you find the themes we cover on the Psychology Podcast interesting and enlightening, you might be interested in my new book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. The book is the culmination of my journey to scientifically discover the factors that can lead us to optimal health, growth, creativity, peak experiences, and deep fulfillment. I believe we can still manage to have peak experiences, the most wondrous moments that make life worth living, regardless of our current life circumstances. We can choose growth. For more, you can visit transcend-book.com. That's transcend-book.com, with a hyphen between the word transcend and the word book. If you get a chance to read the book, it'd be great if you could leave a review on Amazon, tweet about it, or share the book with friends. I truly hope this book can help people get through these tough times and realize that we all have greater resiliency, creativity, and potential within us than we ever realized. Okay, now back to the show. There's so much here, so much rich material, and the question is like, where do I go next? Let me talk, let me dive into corporations for a second and businesses. Entire corporations can kind of be uh, tight or loose, right? No, but that's right. I mean, just like the same principle, organizations that have a lot of coordination needs, like airlines or nuclear power plants or the military that operate in context of serious threat, need tighter rules. They have cultures that have people, practices, and leaders that are really different than loose organizations. I, I take this from Ben Schneider, who is an organizational theorist. 
he always said the people make the place. And, and we found that tight cultures that are organizational cultures tend to have people who are more conscientious. They have more standardized procedures and rules, formality, and they have leaders that are more independent and loose organizations that have less threat, more mobility, more diversity tend to have people who are more promotion focused, more risk taking. They have more informality and experimentation and they have leaders that are more collaborative and team oriented. And what in the book, I talk a lot about, again, the advantages of both and why they're so important as adaptations. But what happens when they merge is really problematic. And just like in the invisibility of culture at the national level, organizations tend to merge without doing a lot of cultural due diligence. <laughs> they, they merge a lot of times because of strategic types of compatibilities, but don't recognize that there's kind of iceberg beneath the surface where tight and loose is going to rear its head. And we've been analyzing organizations and what happens when they merge, when they don't, when they do have big tight loose differences and finding that there's really big losses financially, mm. the bigger the differences. And so our point actually uh, in a new paper on this topic is that we really need to negotiate culture. Like tight loose is, we invented norms, we have stronger loose norms for good reasons, but we can actually negotiate them. We can negotiate them before we merge, we can negotiate them in households with our spouses, which I do a lot with when I'm trying to parent you know, kids. I mean, it, it comes up all the time between you know, two individuals, you know, how strict or permissive you should be in different domains with your kids. In organizations, which domains can you give up a little slack uh, and have a little bit more order when you're merging. And, and and so I talk quite a bit about that in the book, that how a lot of these differences are negotiable. Um, and uh, that's the exciting thing is to think about how do you create this, what I call ambidexterity? How can you have kind of both and adapt them as needed? Um, and a lot of it just involves recognizing the constructs and, and talking about them. And, and again, getting to like this negotiation table when it comes to mm -hmm. culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. This this idea of that neither is absolutely good or bad, and context matters. And it sounds to me more like you're saying balance matters. But are they are these two different? Is it one continuum or are they two separate continuums that interact? This is what I'm trying to so, wrap my yeah, head around. So, yeah. So in all of our data, they're typically unidimensional. Like you kind of can think about strict and permissive. Um, norms, but they can also be, um, you can also find in any social system, some domains that are very tight and some that are loose. So for example, Japan is a good example. Like it's a pretty tight culture, but you can find pockets where there's a lot of looseness. And actually it's kind of funny. It's, they're all usually organized looseness, like going out with your boss and getting drunk is pretty like, and, I, and karaoke is even something one of my former students was telling me, like, it's pretty tight. Because in Laoi, people be loose in a tight way, you know, or you think about mm. a, the U.S. It's pretty loose in general. Yeah. But there's certainly domains that are tight. You know, for example, privacy is a very tight domain in the United States where we don't just show up at each other's houses randomly. You could try that, see how people react. Right. But privacy is a really valued domain. And my theory would be that in, t in any culture, the domains that are really important tend to evolve to be tight because we really cherish them. And New Zealand's another good example. You know, it's a pretty loose context. People walking barefoot in banks and burning couches on university campuses. But there, there's some domains that are pretty tight. And one of them mm -hmm. has to do with what people call the tall poppy syndrome, not trying to appear like you're better than others, or you'll be like kind of cut down. And, and that stems from the very strong value of egalitarianism in New Zealand. So there's a strict value around egalitarianism. So while it's a unidimensional construct, we can find domains that are tight or loose. And the exciting thing for me is to kind of figure out why that is. Um, I, I want to get back to something you said about balance. I think, you know, for me, one interesting, um, application of tight loose theories is what I call the Goldilocks principle. Remember that kind of book, that storybook about not too hot, not too cold, not too soft, not too hard. Um, and uh, I have a whole chapter on this because the idea is that groups need to be or tight or loose for good reasons, mm -hmm. but that the groups that get too extreme in either direction have a lot of problems. So you can imagine systems that get too tight, like United Airlines is a good example when that whole PR fiasco happened. 
those organizations need to be tight. They're airlines. You don't want them making all sorts of weird decisions. Yeah. <laughs> but they arguably became too tight. And they were just normatizing everything. And people I interviewed said, yeah, people are following the rules just blindly. They need to insert some flexibility, some looseness into that tight system. It's something I call flexible tightness. And, and on the flip side, I talk about places that get entirely too loose, almost chaotic and disorganized, what Durkheim would have called anime. You, you know, these are contexts like, for example, Tesla, I argue, is getting into that kind of zone where it should veer loose. It's a it's a creative industry, you know, innovative company. But arguably that system was getting too loose where, you know, it needed more structure. It needed more organization, more coordination. I call that structured looseness. And so and then, and by the way, the Goldilocks principle I really had a good, great time like analyzing it from different perspectives. So it applies to organizations but and, and to nations. I found that nations that are too tight or too loose have higher suicide. Being in general, and it applies to households. You know, parents that are too helicopter-like or too laissez-faire produce kids that are problematic. So the, the bottom line is that... Um, we need to kind of recalibrate norms in some context. We need to know when we need to loosen norms that are getting too tight, and we need to tighten norms that are getting too loose in other contexts. And of course, it's not easy, but I find some, ex I, I have some examples in the book of, of, of ways that this has been done uh, in contexts that maybe we need to think about doing this in uh, and be more mindful, in a sense, about culture. Um, and so yeah. that's kind of part of the, part of the story has to do with, um, yes, we need to stand and empathize with tight loose differences, but we need to be mindful of when they get too extreme. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. These, these you, you can kind of see these uh, extremes uh, playing itself out again on politics on both the left and the right. Um, extreme tightness and extreme looseness, I think, maps onto far right and far left in, in, in some sense. <laughs> in some sense. You know, they're definitely correlated. I mean, I, I think from a political point of view, one of the things I talk about is how we need to understand that when systems get entirely loose and chaotic or when people perceive a lot of chaos, this is something Fromm talked about, you know, decades ago, oh, that when people Fromm. perceive when, when people perceive disorder, they it, they yearn for security. So, for example, I talk about something in the book that has to do with why people welcomed ISIS in some context. And we have some data on this, you know, that we look at this and think this is a random occurrence. And of course, it's multiply determined. But the context where ISIS was able to really take over were places that were totally normless, where people were craving for some kind of order. Or you take someone like Duterte, which Americans think is, they think he's crazy, and they don't understand why would Philip, the Philippines, why would people have such positive feelings and attitudes about, about this guy? Uh, and again, analyzing it through tight loose theory, the idea is that in these contexts, they were getting almost normless and people yearn for the kind of security. They're willing to give up freedom in these contexts. The same applies in Russia, that applies in many contexts. And so one of the sort of policy implications is that we need to really be diagnosing contexts that are getting very disorderly and understand the human psychology that goes around that in terms of, you know, what, what tight forces will take over those contexts. Mm. Um, and one other example I talk about is, I don't want to give too many examples. No one's going to read the book now, right? But the, the, other, they better. The, the other context is Arab Spring. You know, we, we were on the ground collecting data after Mubarak was ousted. And, you know, it's a really interesting phenomena of this kind of pendulum shift that we call kind of autocratic recidivism. You know, people were screaming freedom after they got rid of him. But then they started realizing this place is totally disorderly. Like we can't even coordinate on any kind of basis. There was increases in crime and um, violations of norms in all sorts of contexts. And we found people who felt like there was a lot of looseness uh, or extreme looseness desired uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or the Salafi government again. And it's the same kind of principle that we're putting in place from from just using modern cultural psychology theory to say that it's not too surprising in context where autocrats breed distrust among among people. After all, if people, you know, trusted each other, they'd probably throw out the autocrat. <laughs> so those contexts have very little trust. Then you throw out any kind of organizing power, like the autocrat provides, coordinating mechanism, and you have chaos. You have normlessness, and so you kind of see this repeated pattern. We have some data, empirical data, but also some modeling that we've been doing on this, some computational modeling. Um, to try to understand how do we prevent that. So in any event, that's kind of the broader wow. principle that Goldilocks kind of invites, which is try to think about 
you know, how do you anticipate these radical shifts around the world uh, in ways that might have been predictable? I I think it's a great point, and I, I I just think about how some of this is in the eye of the beholder. Some people might what they may see as chaos may differ from what someone else sees as chaos. Um, I I, I keep thinking about you know like um, kind of an elephant in the room here, like Jordan Peterson. You know, his whole mission yeah. is fighting defending against the chaos of the feminine. <laughs> I don't know about the <laughs> I say that cheekily, but defending yeah. against the chaos of the left, the far left, yeah. what we should say. And um uh and and he has you know a huge huge following that that sees that problem as well and. Um, and I can see some of the points he's making for for sure. Um, but I wonder if you know there's some people who who hate Jordan Peterson, but in their own view, they 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 see him as the chaos. Yeah. I, I just wonder if we're if so much of us are talking past each other in terms of like fighting over who who's the real chaos. You know, I'm not yeah. the real chaos. You're the real chaos. And yeah. you know and. I just wanted to bring that up because I, I like having honest discussions. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I think that chaos is when I talk about it, it's sort of like disorder, right? It's it's about yeah. like things are like unpredictable and you can't yeah. organize social action. And and for some people, people, like you said, have different tolerances of that. But in, in general, as it gets more extreme, uh, I think groups really do yearn for um, a tighter social order. Mm. Um and I think the question is how to balance tight and loose. You know, we, we need each other. We, we need order and we need openness, right? So the question is, in a lot of ways, and of course, I don't have the answer to this, but is how yeah. do we accomplish that as, as nations, as in households? Uh, how do we sort of strike a balance where when we get tight, it helps us with order and coordination, but it also makes us lose out on creativity and tolerance. But when we get too loose, we are really creative and tolerant, but we lose out on some of the order needs that people have. Um, and so part of it is trying to strike that balance. Um, well, that would that he would say that's that's his mission is is that our is that like our society has become too to this chaos thing that he needs to restore the balance. Yeah, he, the savior I mean, of the balance. Well, I think I think a lot of people, um, including our politicians, are saying that. And, right. and I think the question is again, I'll, I'll sort of bring in some of Stephen Pinker's arguments, um, who I really uh, I find that he is really. Uh, hitting the nail on the head that in many ways, and clearly there's some exceptions, but in many ways we're much less threatened than we were as a species um, many, many years ago. I've been reading some books about sort of the history of East and West Berlin recently and thinking, whoa, like imagine being around in the 1500s with chronic war, constant threats, constant pathogens, po constant famines. You know, we are as a as a world much safer uh, in many ways. And so this is where I think trying to discern and again, it's no easy quest. What's real and what's imagined in terms of threat is really critical for not unnecessarily tightening. Um, and that, that's such a good point. That's the kind of our, you know, our quest with trying to also develop some of these dictionaries to try to target and find out where are the places where people are feeling super threatened and what kind of consequences is that happening in real time so that Such we can try to intervene. And yeah, this stuff is so complex, Dr. Gelfand, <laughs> because people, I feel like people differ in their perceptions of, of what's a threat and what's not a threat. I mean, look, for some reason, to Republicans, uh, uh, snowflake liberals are threatening, <laughs> you know, like that's well, threatening to them, you know. And yeah. on the on the left, um, uh, you know, of course, uh, very – well, I think for anyone, alt-right is threatening even for Republicans, you know. I mean – One of the things that, you know, I and I write about this in the book is, you know, and everyone talks about these echo chambers. Part of the problem is that it's not just that we perceive each other very negatively, as you were saying. We sort mm -hmm. of have these very extreme stereotypes, and partly that's because we don't – have any real meaningful context where we're starting to interact with people on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. Uh, one of the techniques that we developed recently that's coming out in behavioral science and policy journal is this thing called the daily diary technique. And we actually use this to try to help people understand each other better through daily diaries. So imagine you start reading someone's diary from Pakistan or, or if someone in Pakistan reads an American diary for like seven days. Um, and this is what we did, actually. We have randomly assigned people to read real diaries versus 
diaries from someone in their own country or diaries from someone in a different country. And what was interesting is at the start of the study, Pakistanis didn't just see the U.S. as loose. They saw the U.S. as like extraordinarily loose, like people half naked all the time or calling the police and their parents for being too strict. And Mm -hmm. Americans, if they knew where Pakistan was, which was a big if, didn't think about Pakistanis playing sports and reading poetry. They only saw them as being in mosques all the time. This was kind of a narrow situational sampling. And they had really negative stereotypes about each other. So we were targeting those negative stereotypes. The diaries were unedited. It was clear that the U.S. diaries involved more looseness and the Pakistani diaries involved more tightness on a daily basis. But what was so remarkable was after this diary intervention, that was my after New York accent, you see a big change in, in how people were perceiving each other. And they didn't see that they were so they were completely similar, but they saw that they were more similar than they ever had imagined. And we're now doing a study with the Delhi Diaries trying to also uh, target Republicans and Democrats to see can we actually get people, you know, to kind of see each other's worlds in a more realistic way? Yes, we differ in a lot of ways, but we encounter a lot of the same situations on a daily basis. So we're targeting what stereotypes they have of each other. You know, every every de-stereotyping endeavor would involve different focus groups and different stereotypes to target. But I think, you know, in this world where we do tend to be in echo chambers, this is one technique of, of probably many where we could try to get people to actually experience the situations and, and, and similarity they have at a far deeper level than they'd be able to in other lives, in, 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 in other contexts. So hmm. that's just to say that we are different but, and with different important ways, but that, you know, having meaningful conversation, there's some examples of this happening across the left and right, right? That, um, there was a, a, a faculty at Stanford that recently ran this big, um, you know, kind of de-stereotyping uh, intervention face to face, and by the end of it, uh, having brought in people from from uh, Republican and Democratic sides, they were able to see again just how much more commonality they had. They were able to come; all of them were able to kind of become more centrist. So, you know, I think there is hope. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not terrified. I'm actually writing an article for the Guardian right now. They asked me to write an article on what did I change my mind on this year. And I thought, well, actually, one thing I've changed my mind on is how fragile democracy is. Like, I used to just take it for granted. Like, of course, like, and I've, I've, we know we're all talking about this, the, you know, how it's becoming the norms of democracy are being shattered. But I actually started thinking about how unusual democracy is, just how crazy of an accident it is and, and, and how much, you know, the psychology of the desire for order, the Framian kind of sense is, is way more typical than the feeling of safety. And, and so in any event, but I do have hope, um, again, based on some of these examples that, um, you know, this this is something that um, we will look back on and, and feel stronger about. I hope so. Do you, do you find that um, with people understanding each other's perspectives more, they start to perceive them as less threatening? Do you think there's a correlation? There's a causation there? Well, I think that um, it's certainly the case that... Um, when you have such extreme stereotypes, you know, you feel this great distance from each other. So in the Pakistan-American study, we measured cultural distance, like how much do you perceive the nations to be really different? And that was the prime mover of differences in, in, in targeting stereotypes. So at the end of the study, Pakistanis saw, and Americans, that they had um, less cultural distance when they read each other's diaries as compared to when they read people's uh, diaries from their own country. And that helped Pakistanis to see Americans as more moral. At the end of the study, they didn't see us as immoral um, or as aggressive. And Americans uh, saw Pakistanis as having more freedom than they ever mm. would have anticipated. So we're trying to shift different stereotypes. But I want to mention that before we did this study, we, we did a different technique I was really excited about, but it totally failed. This is mm. kind of a shout out to all the people out there that have a lot of failed research. But, you know, basically, Woo-woo. I thought this was an awesome study. We, we prime people using contextual priming that's been used in other other contexts. In Pakistan, we have people flash, looking at pictures of Americans in tighter contexts, like looking like they were at work or with their families. They were also seeing pictures of them at parties and, as well. And also, but and at the flip side, we showed Americans pictures of Pakistanis, not just in mosques, but also dancing and reading poetry, playing sports and so forth. And we're hoping this can 
contextual priming would shift stereotypes, and it did nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> this is after we translated this in Urdu and back translated and et cetera. And what we found is that people just didn't believe these pictures. You know, they just Aww. found them to be incomprehensible. So that's why we, we went out and we started doing some of the daily diary studies. We said, you know, let's just get right to the point and expose people to, you know, the real lives. And we told them it was a study about social memory. So they weren't primed to think this is about fostering intercultural understanding. But in any event, that's just kind of a, a story of science of, you know, you keep on, keep rocking on <laughs> even but, after but, <laughs> you expect something to work. And, you know, there's always interesting, you know, kind of reasons why it doesn't. Yeah. But you gave me hope and then you took the hope away. No, I don't know. The hope is there. Uh, I mean, I, I tend to be an optimist by nature. And as I mentioned, I think one of the things exciting about cross-cultural psych to me is that once we understand, you know, kind of the cultural codes driving behavior, we can start negotiating them, looking out for them, using them. Um, I mentioned earlier, like in my own household, like, so I veer loose. I'm going to be totally honest, you know, and my husband, he's a lawyer. He veers tighter. He's also oh, from yeah. the Midwest. I'm a Jewish New Yorker, you know, and um, we, we tend to negotiate tight and loose, even with our kids. Like we sort of say, look guys, like what domains need to be tight? What domains need to be loose? How do we kind of negotiate that? What's our priorities? And that, I study negotiation. So, I mean, it's all about what are your most important priorities? Um, and so, you know, for me, you know, I'm like, okay, well, and we came to an agreement. It's important to be strict in domains of schoolwork and health and, um, and how people treat each other, the two mm -hmm. sisters, but, you know, we're going to give up a little more latitude in terms of like their bedtime and how messy they are. I don't think Todd's too happy about that. He, he, he's like, the house is a mess. We have, you know, a dog, two birds, two daughters, you know, but the house is kind of a mess. But I think that's the point is that, and we're actually now starting to develop tight, loose domains, specific domains on which you can sort of negotiate the, this in households. And, and again, some groups need to veer tighter uh, in, in their households than others, but nevertheless, it's negotiable. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> so how can modifying a nation's norms address protracted social problems? Well, you know, this is a really interesting question because, you know, the national level is kind of tricky. You know, these are like norms require, you know, they're, they're slow to change. They're particularly slow to change when going from tight to loose than going from loose to tight. Uh, but I have some examples in the book of, of, of whole nations doing this. Um, Iceland was a good example. Um, some years ago, it was just having massive problems with looseness. Like cities were unsafe. Kids were out drinking constantly. Like there was just a, a real problem with disorder. And there was this kind of realization that they didn't use the terminology, but they had to tighten up. They had to have more monitoring. They had to have uh, more engagement and more accountability. And that's exactly what they did. And I talk about the story in the book so you can read it. Uh, but it does provide hope that there's a way to also kind of tighten up contexts that have gotten too loose. Uh, in organizations, I provide some examples of that. Actually, um, Microsoft had some good examples. I interviewed Bob Herbold, who talked about in the early days that things were just totally unstandardized and they needed to tighten up a lot of their processes because as you scale up in organizations, you need to have more coordination and more standardization. And at first, when they tried to implement more tightness, more coordination, more rules, more accountability, there was a lot of backlash. You know, it was threatening to needs for autonomy in a lot of ways. But, mm. you know, he was able to negotiate with people and say, this is why we need to do this. This is why we need to tighten up these operations. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of examples that where you could see you have great leadership and you have ways to it in a tight context that's trying to loosen um, versus a loose context trying to tighten. You have different processes that you try to use. And I have a whole sort of discussion around like, how do you engage in flexible tightness where you're trying to insert some more flexibility into that system where you give people more room to explore where you have less centralization or in a flip side how do you structure looseness when you're used to so much freedom it involves more centralization involves more monitoring more benchmarking so there's there's definitely ways to do it it's going to depend on the context of course but either way it requires good leadership and it requires yeah. you know and attention to culture, you know, that's the issue that I think a lot of us who study culture think is amazing yeah. because back to the fish story, you know, we kind of ignore it and we, we take it for granted. It's it's a really powerful force that affects everything from our politics to our parenting, but we don't think about it. Uh, you know, I, I have to say it wasn't always interesting culture. I was pre-med when I was in college at Colgate and, and I actually went abroad for a semester 
And I was totally like in shock. I mean, I remember calling my father, Marty from Brooklyn, and confiding in him how crazy this culture shock was. I, I was the first person to leave the country from my family. And and I was telling him about all the culture shock, including that people from London would go to Paris or Amsterdam just for the weekend. And I, th- I found that to be really puzzling. And so he said to me something that changed my life. He said, well, imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, dad, that is such an awesome metaphor. And actually, this is a true story. The next day I booked a trip to Egypt, a low budget tour to Egypt. And I told him that he was like, what are you doing? And I said, dad, just think about it like I'm going from New York to California. And, you know, it it was true. Like, Uh... I just want I realized how little I know about the world and about myself by extension. And so when I was tra- I went to Egypt and I had a lot of time on my hands during the semester abroad and it really changed my whole view of, you know, kind of how little I know about this important phenomenon of culture. And so when I got back to Colgate, I was lucky I took a human development class um, by Carolyn Keating, who had been studying visual illusions in Africa and showing that certain mm-hmm. illusions like the Mueller liar illusion are not universal. And I was like, whoa, like maybe this is something I can actually study and and actually, you know, research using scientific tools. And that's kind of what landed me working with Harry Trandis in, in Champaign-Urbana. I wasn't too excited about going to Champaign-Urbana, but, <laughs> but, you know, I went I've to the University been. of Triandis and, you know, anyway, that's, that's kind of an exciting thing. You know, I always say like finding your passion, it's trite. It's a, it's a, you know, catch all phrase, catch all story, but it is true that you, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, I, I am more excited about this field now having been in it for 25 years you know, even more excited than I ever was. So anyway, that's oh, kind of a long story about how I got that's into great. this crazy. That's great. That's a lot of people can't say that. So, um, that's great. And also I, I, I'm hearing from you that it's, um, uh, it's very possible to harness the power of social norms, you know, that, that things, things can change. I, I, I actually, I like this quote from your book. When people have thrived in the face of adversity, they've done so because of other people and the social norms they've created together. Isn't that good? That's a good quote. <laughs> Do you remember that? Does that sound familiar? Did I write no, that? Maybe you didn't. Actually, maybe you didn't. <laughs> maybe I'm making I that up. You know, I think that uh, like any change, you know, it requires a lot of negotiation. Um, uh, and it's not easy because people who are coming from the type. You agree with that, right? You agree with it, though, right? Yeah, you, I think, you know, when you're you think about the underlying needs, people who are going from tight to loose are threatened by autonomy and, and the lack of control. People going from loose to tight are threatened by a loss of autonomy. So it really takes great leaders to kind of figure out how to make that balance and how to negotiate that. But um, I do think it's an important thing to, to be mindful of and that w- the more we recognize these codes and, and talk about them, uh, the better off uh, we are than just having them remain invisible. Yeah. I mean, you do talk about, I hope I'm reading the same book now. You talk about how recalibration yes. can do things like reduce abuse and even in the, even in the internet setting, you yeah. know, that's right. Ch- no, you're right. You're yeah. reading oh. my book. I talk oh my God. Time. I suddenly had a panic attack. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, no, I, I mean, I, I talk about the internet as a great example that needs tightening. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting context because, you know, in many ways we, again, want to calibrate it so that we don't lose the benefit of looseness, lose the benefit of the connectivity and the, and the creativity and the you know, great exposure we have to many things. At, at the same time, we're living our worlds now online. You know, yeah. from an evolution perspective, we were always in context where we're able to kind of recalibrate our social norms. Um, and now we need to do that more deliberately. Uh, you, you see that happening bottom up. You see it on Reddit, mm. for example, where people are starting to create ways to keep people accountable, because that's really what this is about. I mean, we've known this for years, right, in psychology. When you're on, not face-to-face, people do all sorts of weird things. You know, this lack of social presence makes people unaccountable, makes them more norm violating. So Reddit's developing mechanisms from the bottom up to try to avoid those scenarios, to have people feel like that space, they're in a living space that where they're accountable for their behavior. I mean, of course, there's also top down ways this happens, you know, through what we're seeing now emerging uh, with, you know, leaders in uh, on these social media platforms kind of stepping up and saying, well, you know, we were engineers. We didn't know this is going to happen. You know, I think, you know, actually, Kara Swisher, I was on one of her podcasts and she's like, well, don't you think they're evil, these guys? <laughs> you know, or maybe she didn't say like that, but don't you think that they like, you know, really are, you know, shouldn't really recognize this? And, you know, I think, you know, not necessarily, you know, because we know as psychologists that these contexts breed really uh, negative types of behaviors. But, 
you know, the point now is to exert more top-down control, more bottom-up control, try to achieve the Goldilocks principle, um, you know, through these kinds of processes, because it's definitely a context where we need to start uh, being mindful about social norms. Absolutely. But you are hopeful. I'm going to end here on a hopeful message that um, we can recalibrate in a way we can cultivate greater uh, social norms that facilitate greater cooperation among nations and ethnic groups. Yeah, absolutely. I think we and have religions and political persuasions. Yeah, I think we have evidence for that. Again, it takes a lot of work, but I think, you know, I remain optimistic until proven otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on the Psychology Podcast today, talking about your very original and important in the world today research. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.